Well, let's jump into our message this morning. I am so fired up to speak about this today. We're going to be talking about faith, and nothing fires me up like talking about faith. And we are in our message series on the life of Jesus, going through all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in chronological order, in order that the events actually happened so that we can know Jesus for ourselves. What he said, what he taught, what he stood for, what he did, we can see it in black and white and understand firsthand who this Jesus was, the center of our faith, the center of the universe. And today's study is going to pick off right where last week's study left off. Over the past two weeks, Jesus has begun preaching in parables, little stories that reveal big truths, and he's been teaching the multitude, a crowd of thousands in these parables, and then explaining them to the disciples in private. We talked about that last week. And I'm gonna start this teaching by asking you to do something a little bit unusual. If you look on your outline, you're gonna see that it says, my greatest or my biggest personal challenge, and then there's a line. I'm gonna ask you to write down right now the greatest personal challenge you're facing in your life right now. And I understand that some of you won't do it because you're like, this is a small room and I'm pretty sure the person next to me is trying to read what I'm writing on my piece of paper. It's probably especially true for all of you that are married. If you're married and you're sitting next to your spouse, don't write their name. That's just a free marriage pointer for you. Trust me, I'm a professional. But write down your greatest personal challenge. If you're not comfortable writing it down, just keep it in your mind and keep your mind on that as we go through today's study because God's word is going to speak to that right now, today. Because today we're going to be talking about storms, storms that hit our lives. And my pastor used to say, you're either coming out of a crisis or you're about to go into one. And he wasn't being negative. He was just observing the natural flow of life. And the reality is that we can never get our lives to the place where they're free of turmoil or challenge or crisis. What happens is, Lord willing, we become more like Jesus and we learn to handle those things better and better. But the sea is always going to change. It's going to be calm one day and then a storm is going to roll in out of nowhere And those of you that have been around the block a few times, you know that you learn to appreciate the calm between the storms even more when you're in those seasons. Those are good seasons worth soaking up. And as a church that loves the word of God, we desire to grow in the faith. I love how much Paul talks about this. He always says, I want you to grow up in the faith. Be deeply rooted so that you're not tossed all over the place by every little wind. And so as a church that loves the word of God, we want to grow up in the faith. But it's easy for us to miss this truth, and it's your first fill-in, that we cannot grow in the faith without growing in faith itself. We cannot grow in the faith without growing in faith itself. Faith is the key to everything in the Christian life. Everything. Trusting God and believing Him is what it's all about. We love God's Word because it empowers us with the truth of why God is trustworthy. That's why we love the Word of God. When you're really growing in the faith, it shows up in your faith. How much you trust God with the real things. In fact, in Hebrews eleven six, it says, without faith, it is impossible to please him. You can have all the knowledge in the world, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, that he is what? He is God, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. 
And we don't know exactly how the process works, but we know from the Bible that God has made faith our part in many of the things he desires to do in us and through us. We don't know how the process works, but we know that faith is part of what God wants to do in us and through us. That's why Jesus was constantly saying things like, according to your faith, let it be done to you. The Bible and Jesus make it clear that a lack of faith is a problem. It's not a personality trait. It's a real problem. In Matthew 17, the disciples are unable to heal a sick boy, and they ask Jesus what the problem was, and Jesus says, you lack faith. That's what the problem is. You don't have enough faith. I want you to write this down. The disciples, like many of us, believed in God, but didn't believe God. They believed in God, but they didn't believe God. And many times we're sold on the big picture stuff. Jesus died for our sins. He rose from the dead. We're gonna spend eternity with him in heaven, but we struggle to believe he will actually involve himself in our daily lives, in the daily grind, in a way that makes a real difference. We don't believe that the promises in the Bible will actually change real things in our lives right now. We believe in God, but we don't believe God. We believe he's real, but we just don't believe that he'll actually do what he said he would do in his word. The Holy Spirit comes to us and says, I want you to trust me in this specific area of your life. We believe the Holy Spirit is real, but we don't believe he'll actually show up and make a real difference when we need him to. Pretty sure I'm not the only one who's ever wrestled with this. Listen to me. God loves you just the way you are, but he loves you far too much to leave you just the way you are. He's working to make us more like Jesus, who trusted the Father's plan, exhibited incredible faith. He trusted the Father's plan and believed the Father all the way to his death, that he would be raised again. We can't become more like Jesus without becoming people of radical, strong faith, people who take God at his word. And unfortunately, there's only one way to grow in the area of faith, and it's being given an opportunity to exercise faith, to choose faith. And faith is only required when there's a gap, when there's a missing page in the plot, a lack of information, the unknown, uncertainty, fear, doubt. Those are the things that necessitate the exercise of faith. And this is always how God works. If he wants you to learn patience, he's gonna make you wait a really long time for something. So when my wife always says, don't pray for patience, don't do it. If he wants you to learn grace, he's going to put you around people who provide seemingly endless opportunities to exercise grace. I have five kids. I know what I'm talking about. Hear me on this. God is constantly giving us opportunities to choose faith and to walk in faith. Constantly. In Philippians 1.6, Paul writes, Be confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And the idea is this, the Holy Spirit's always working to make us more like Jesus, and we can count on him to never stop that process until we finally do become like Jesus when we arrive in his presence one day. You can bank on the Holy Spirit being relentless at working in your life to make you more like Jesus. None of us suffer from a lack of opportunity to trust God. None of us. 
And that's the situation we find the disciples in as we pick up our study today. They've just received an incredible teaching from Jesus about the power of his word, the parable of the sower, the parable about how the farmer sows the seed, which represents the word of God, goes to bed, comes up the next day, and something grows in the life of the believer. Jesus has just taught them about the mysterious power of his word. And like any good teacher, Jesus is going to follow his teaching with a test. And this test is going to be an opportunity for the disciples to apply what they just learned. And that opportunity is going to take the form of a life-threatening storm. And there are so many obvious parallels to the storms we all face in our own lives. But here's what I think we've all learned. We've all learned that the storms of life are the BS detector of our faith. Am I right? They are the BS detector of our faith. This is your fill-in. I was really pleased that I came up with this one. (laughs) Storms of life reveal whether we're full of faith or just full of it. The storms of life reveal whether we're full of faith or really just full of it. You know, God knows where we stand. God isn't up there going, I've got to send them a test so that I can figure out where they're at. He knows where we're at. He knows. He wants us to know where we're at. He wants us to understand what we really believe. He wants us to understand whether we really trust him or not because he wants us to be prepared for the next storm. He wants us to win. He wants us to be victorious through him. Storms reveal what we believe is greater, the storm or God. Let's pick it up in Mark chapter 4. We're going to be in verse 35, Mark 4, 35. Then I want you to underline those first four words. On the same day, it says. On the same day. The Bible wants us to notice this test, this crisis happened the same day they had just received this teaching from Jesus about the power of his word. When evening had come, he said to them, and then I want you to underline what Jesus said. Let us cross over to the other side. Let us cross over to the other side. And I wanted you to underline that because that's the word that Jesus has spoken in this situation. We're going to the other side, and that's going to be important. They've received a clear word from Jesus. He shared his plan with them. It sounds simple enough, but the disciples' faith in Jesus' word is about to be tested. Did Jesus say, here's the plan. We're going to try and go to the other side, but then this epic storm is going to hit. You're all going to drown, but I'm going to be fine because... I can walk on water. That's the plan, guys. Jesus didn't say that. He said, we are going to the other side. That's what's going to happen. Remember that. One quick note on the next verse. You'll see that it reads, now when they had left the multitude, and I always like to point this out. I'm so fascinated by this. The, the, The picture is really the multitude, a crowd of thousands, is still flocking to Jesus to interact with them. They want more healing, more miracles, more teaching. But Jesus is so in tune with the Holy Spirit, he understands when his part in the process is done. And when the Holy Spirit says, you're done, you need to rest now. Jesus obeys, even though there's more work that could be done. And I believe that if Jesus had not been sensitive to the Holy Spirit, he would have been at great risk of sinning. Great risk. There's a great saying that I encourage you all to never forget. Fatigue makes cowards of us all. Fatigue makes cowards of us all. There are so many situations in life where a negative or a bad situation snowballs because we're trying to tackle it while we're fatigued. And we have no courage We have no faith. We're more susceptible to sin. This is why if you're single, 
You don't need to be hanging out alone with a member of the opposite sex at one o'clock in the morning. Fatigue makes cowards of us all. Your defenses go down. You're not going to start a spontaneous Bible study. I promise. <laughs> Guarantee. That's not how the story's going to go. Jesus was wise and didn't allow himself to be put in dangerous situations with regard to sin. You need to know your limits. Listen to the Holy Spirit. In your exhaustion, don't sin. Accept the invitation of God to rest. It says they took him along in the boat as he was. And the idea is Jesus is saying, let's go to the other side. And then he keeps talking to people. The disciples get the boat ready and they have to pull Jesus away as he's talking to the people. And then it says, and other little boats were also with him. You might want to underline other little boats were also with him. And I want you to underline that because when you read this again in the future, I want it to come back to your remembrance that everything that's going to take place in the boat where Jesus is with the disciples is going to affect all of these other little boats as well. They're also going to be in the same storm that's going to hit, and they're going to be at risk of perishing too. We have a tendency to think that nobody faces the same temptations we do. Nobody faces the same struggles. Nobody's got it as bad as me. Nobody's been through what I've been through. And this metaphor of these other little boats that are in the storm is just reminding us, no, everybody goes through struggles. Everybody goes through trials. All suffering is relative. When you're facing the biggest storm you've ever faced in your life, it's terrifying. Even though if you're a college student, your storm might be even mildly amusing to me. I'm thinking, you don't have anything to worry about. I got finals. Oh, my gosh. I'm like, wow, I'd love to trade places with you if that's the greatest stress in your life. But all suffering is relative. It's all relative, and everybody goes through it. And so when you go through a storm, just remember that how you handle it is going to have an effect on other people around you. It's going to add to the turmoil and the panic or God's going to do a work, and that's going to have an impact on everybody around you as well. In verse 37, it says, And a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat, so that it was already filling. You might want to underline filling. So the picture here is that this epic storm is happening, and the water is coming physically into the boat. The danger here is that the boat is simply going to take on so much water that it's going to sink. It's a serious crisis. And you might be thinking, Sea of Galilee is, is not that big. It's really a big lake. How, how is the storm happening? If you've ever seen like the old paintings, they always have like three-foot waves on the side of the boat, and the disciples are panicked holding on to it, you know, and Jesus is there just like doing his thing. And they're not three-foot waves. The Sea of Galilee is 680 feet below sea level. It's the lowest body of water in the world, 680 feet below sea level. Directly to the north, 9,280 feet above sea level is Mount Hermon, which gets so cold that it can be skied in winter in Israel. So what happens is this. The cold air from Mount Hermon blows down through a small ravine in the northern part of the valley and funnels into the Sea of Galilee. And the cold air hits the warm air on the Sea of Galilee and it creates turbulence. And a storm there, to this day, can erupt in seconds. In fact, sailors on the Sea of Galilee to this day are told, if you see even a small cloud begin to form, you need to run for shore because it can turn in minutes into something that is as dark as night. Waves in recent times have been recorded on the Sea of Galilee higher than 25 feet. And waves are measured from the front to the back. So we're talking about a face of really about 40 feet high. 
That's what's going on here. The boat is going up and down probably around 40 feet. And remember this. The disciples are experienced fishermen. They know these waters well. They haven't taken on more than they can handle. I'm sure they've been through storms, but we're going to find there's something about this one that scares the life out of them. And if they say it's life-threatening, it's life-threatening, guaranteed. Verse 38, but he, Jesus, was in the stern of the boat. And then you want to underline, asleep on a pillow. Asleep on a pillow. And they awoke him and said, and then you're going to want to underline the word said. We're going to come back to that. They said to him, teacher, and then underline, do you not care that we are perishing? The disciples respond just like we normally do in a storm. Don't you care about what's happening to me? Are you completely out of touch with what's going on in my life? Do do you not see this? Do you even hear me right now? Do something. Don't you love me? I'm dying here. Instead of faith, we accuse God of not caring because God doesn't respond to our frantic panic in like kind. We decide that he must not care. He's taking too long, probably because he wants me to die. We question, now get this, this is why it's crazy. We question whether or not the God who died for us loves us. Instead of faith, we prophesy and rehearse the worst case scenario. We are perishing. It's a statement. It's not do something or we will perish. It's we are perishing. I'm going down. This is it. Just just know that's the way it is. Just wanted to ask you to pray for me because I'll probably be dead and won't be at church next week because my life is going to hell. In verse 38, where it says, they said to him, the original Greek word for said that is used in Luke's gospel is the word lego. Yep, like the toy, lego. It's used to describe something that's being said as part of a discourse. And this is why I had you underline it. The idea is it's not a phrase or a statement. They're going over and over it again and again. It's a discourse. It is a speech. It is a meditation. It is a presentation on all the reasons they're dying and everything is going horribly wrong. It is an argument for why God doesn't love them or care. They're building the cases. They talk about it more and more. We're going under. We're dying because apparently you don't care what's going to happen to us. They're going on and on about how they're going to die. They're going on and on. And what they're doing is they're just rehearsing the worst case scenario. They're just going over it again and again and again. And what's the one thing that nobody in the boat is saying in that moment? We're going to the other side. They're just reiterating the worst case scenario. Nobody is saying what Jesus said. Nobody. Up to this point in their situation, God has been very silent, but he's been very present. He's still in the boat with him, even though he hasn't said or done anything yet. So write that down. God may be silent, but he's still present. He's still present. If you're in a storm right now and God seems to be silent, remember that he's still present. He's still in the boat with you. He's right there with you. At this point in their Christian walk, the disciples are what we might call roller coaster believers. You know, when things are good, they've got their hands raised to church, How was your week? Just, you know, another amazing week in the goodness of God, brother. 
So good, so good. You look a little down, let me share some scripture with you. These guys, when they're high and everything's going good, they are, they are all for it. And when things are going bad, you know, they skulk into church when they show up. Minutes late, they just look really, really down. And when you say, how are you doing? You say, well, you know, I guess uh, my suffering is just for the glory of God. That's probably what he has planned for me. Um, you know, my lot in life is just to have horrible things happen to me, but, you know, still be good to God and, and love God until I die, and then that'll be a testimony to people. <laughs> if there is a God, you know, that, that sort of thing. When they're low, they're just so, so low. They're like bipolar believers is what they are. You know, the place of maturity in the faith is the place of maturity in faith. Where you stop going through these crazy highs and these crazy lows and you begin to live like you actually worship a God who never changes. That's where I'm trying to get to. That's the goal. You kind of hope that as you grow in Christ, the difference between your highs and your lows gets a little bit smaller. I'd like to think that I'm now at the level of a kiddie roller coaster. Hills aren't quite as big and the downhills aren't quite as big. Oh, they're still there but maybe I can be a kitty roller coaster now. That's what I'm hoping for. A few more notes on this. Next week, we're going to find that this storm has actually lasted several hours, probably all night. We're going to find that out because when they reach the other side of the shore, which is probably only four to six miles away, it's the next morning. So this has been going on for hours. It's not like it kicked up in a minute you know, uh, or, or, the, or it lasted just long enough for the painters to make some paintings of what was going on. It was not that that happened. It went on for hours and hours. They were battling the storm, and Jesus is sleeping. I don't know for sure, but I want to suggest to you that Jesus might be in t- intentionally asleep in this situation because when you have a couple of feet of water swishing back and forth over you as you sleep, it usually will wake you up. If not that, then all the people in the boat going, ah, 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 you know, that'll, that'll, that'll do it too. So I kind of think that Jesus might be sleeping in the same way that my kids sleep when we arrive home late at night from being somewhere and they want to be carried into their bedroom, you know, and they're just like, oh, I'm so tired, Dad, I'm just asleep. I think Jesus might be doing that sort of through a half-closed eye, just sort of watching everything that's going on. And, and why is he doing that? Because something profound is happening. This is a test to reveal to the disciples where their faith is at. And Jesus wants to let this play out long enough for them to get a really clear answer. And I also noticed something that was true for the disciples, which is true for all of us at some point. Write this down. Sometimes we're only in the storm because we did what God said. Sometimes we're only in the storm because we did what God said. Sometimes we think that every storm we encounter in life is a result of us being disobedient to God. He's punishing me. I'm not sure what for, but I'm pretty sure that he's punishing me. But here's a case where the disciples were doing exactly what Jesus had told them to do. And now they're in the middle of a deadly storm. They had to be thinking, well, I I thought that if I followed you and obeyed you, that things would would go well. I kind of thought everything would work out. If you're God and you're good, then what are we doing here perishing right now? What, what's the deal? Storms sometimes have nothing to do with sin. Sometimes they're even the result of obedience. 
I also notice that they can't get themselves out of this storm. You know, when God wants to teach me something, he has a way of removing every option so that I can't fix the situation. I can't go anywhere else. I just have to stay in that situation, which nobody really enjoys, but that's how the process works. You can't get yourself out of it. That's the situation God wants to put us in every now and then. That's when we're supposed to go, oh, this is an invitation to trust you, Jesus. This is an opportunity to exercise and grow in faith. And now I know what's going on. And sometimes we, we try and pretend that it's not a spiritual issue when we face these storms. People will come up to us and say, hey, keep trusting God, man. He's got you. And we'll say, yeah, yeah, I know, I know what the Bible says. I, I know what the, all the verses are. But, but listen, this is real. This is really happening to me right now. And I need some real help and some real answers. And it's suddenly revealed that we're, we're not really full of faith. We're just full of it. We have more faith in the circumstance than we do in God. We have absolute faith. This circumstance is going to destroy me. I have absolute faith in that. And no faith in God that he's greater than that. Did you notice that the storm takes place in the area of the disciples' greatest strength, their greatest competency? Jesus wasn't a fisherman. I'm sure they enjoyed being in a boat with him because they finally got to be the guys who were good at something. Well, Jesus was the one who sat there. Well, they took care of business. But now in their area of greatest strength and competency, they're in a storm that they can't get themselves out of. It's interesting. Verse 39, Then Jesus arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. In the original language, it makes it clear things don't die down. This is instantaneous instantaneous and they're just there and it's dead dead flat at some point in the storm jesus decided that's enough that's enough i believe that that happened when they reached the point where jesus said yeah i think their lack of faith has been revealed now okay we're done the storm had served its purpose and with just a few words jesus made it all go away just like that jesus is not punishing you if you're in a storm, he's not torturing you. There's a purpose to the storm that you're facing. And when that purpose has been revealed, Jesus will say, that's enough. And it'll be over just like that. I've experienced this an incredible number of times in my own life. When Jesus says, peace be still, he's literally saying, be muzzled, which I like. He's like, shut up. It's the same phrase in the original language that Jesus uses to address demons in other places in the Bible when they're in people. And that's why most biblical scholars hold, and I do too, that this storm was supernatural in nature. It was sent by demonic forces. It was sent by Satan. And it could have been an assassination attempt by Satan on Jesus. That's possible. But I think it's even more likely that Satan was trying to prevent Jesus from reaching what was on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. We're going to see some very interesting things happen next week. It's in Mark chapter 5. You might want to read ahead on that. But either way, the storm didn't take Jesus by surprise. He allowed it and used it to test his disciples. And as we'll soon see, he used it to grow the faith of his disciples. He wanted to teach his disciples to believe his word. So depending on how well you know Jesus, you will envision him saying what he says next with a certain tone. 
I believe that Jesus is asking these questions, not rhetorically, but very sincerely. He genuinely wants the disciples to examine themselves and figure out the answers to these next two questions in their own lives. But he said to them, why? Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And the reason I think he's asking these questions in sincerity is because he's asked me these questions in sincerity many, many times. I'm embarrassed by how many times. Why are you so fearful? How is it that you're so afraid? In light of all you've seen of me, in light of all that I've done in your life, in light of my track record of faithfulness in your life, why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? The word of God says, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. It says, fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. It says that we know all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. God's word says, my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. And Jesus told us to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else would be taken care of. Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? Jesus wanted his disciples to realize that while they believed in him, they did not believe him. And he wanted to invite them to believe him. In Luke's gospel, Jesus asks them, Where is your faith? Where is your faith? I don't think he's being rhetorical. He's really asking them because their correct answer would have been our faith is in the storm. We believe in its power. They were sure of it. They were talking about it. They were meditating on it, rehearsing its power over them. But nobody was talking about what Jesus said. Nobody was rehearsing that. Write this down. We must meditate on the reality of Jesus and not the reality of the storm. We must meditate on the reality of Jesus and not the reality of the storm. Now, please don't misinterpret what I'm saying. I'm not advocating living in denial. I'm advocating being a realist, and I'll tell you why. Because if you're a realist and you're a believer, you will understand that you are a son or a daughter of the Most High God, and God's power is greater than whatever storm you're in. That's reality. That's reality. Most of the time, we're not realists because we live as though the storm is greater than God. That's not being a realist. That's living in denial. The power of Jesus is greater than the power of the storm. In verse 41 it says, and they feared exceedingly. This was a rough day for their blood pressure because they go from fearing the wind and the waves straight to fearing Jesus. And I think that's appropriate because they were terrified by the power of the storm But they were even more terrified by the power Jesus exhibited when he dealt with the storm like a well-trained puppy. Shh. Okay. In Matthew's gospel, it says that they marveled. Do you notice that Jesus wasn't concerned about the storm? He wasn't even worried that Satan had sent it. He wasn't worried about that. As usual, Jesus' attitude was, you know, that's just Satan doing what Satan does. What concerned Jesus was his disciples' lack of faith. He was saying, but you're not doing what believers do. Believers believe. 
And you need to do what believers do. And this next point might be a little bit uncomfortable. In recent years, there's sort of been a movement in the North American church against a lot of the hypocrisy and the pretension that marked the church, unfortunately, for, say, the last 40 or 50 years, where people would pretend that they were doing well and that they were walking with Jesus and they would go and live train wreck lives, basically, during the week. And you would have people who were dealing with really dark challenges in their lives who would put on a fake smile for two hours at church and go home and not deal with it. So as a reaction to that, we've had this real sort of rise in the North American church of a movement towards authenticity, of just let's be more real with each other, let's be more honest with each other. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing. It's a good thing to be real with each other. But it's very dangerous in one area. And that's the area of faith. Because if you're not careful, what can happen is you can spend all your time giving voice to doubt and fear and the worst case scenario in the name of being authentic. Being authentic. And what I notice is that in the middle of the storm when the disciples are very authentic, we're perishing, we're dying, I'm just saying what's on my mind, I'm about to die. Jesus doesn't say, you know, this this is a real breakthrough for our group dynamic. This is great. The walls are coming down. Now we're being real. Now we can have some church here. Jesus doesn't do that. Instead, Jesus says, why is it that you're so afraid? Where's your faith? Where's your faith? And so as uncomfortable as it might be, I want to encourage you. Don't be a person who entertains fear and doubt and rehearsing the worst case scenario from other believers because you want to be empathic towards them or you want to be authentic with them. The Bible says we're to build each other up in our most holy faith. And I'm not saying be judgmental or pretentious. I'm saying we need to be the people that say, man, I know it sounds tough, but God's still God. He's still with you. I know your life and I know that you can look back and see a thousand times that God has come through for you and he's been faithful. I want to stand with you in faith. Can we pray together in faith? And I want to encourage you, as tempting as it is, let's give voice to faith, not voice to doubt. And if someone has to say that to you, I want you to be open-hearted enough to say, you know what, you're right. You're right. I can't necessarily control every thought that goes through my mind, but I have control over what I allow to come out of my mouth. And so I'm going to choose to say what Jesus says because I don't find anywhere in the Bible where Jesus says, good job being authentic, good job giving voice to those fears and those doubts. That's what I want, honesty. Jesus says, I want you to be a realist. If you want to talk about honesty, you want to talk about truth, truth is I'm with you. The truth is I'm for you, not against you. The truth is I'll never leave you or forsake you. Let's be real. Let's be really real. I've not abandoned you for even a moment. I'm with you to the end of the age. We've got to be people that build each other up in our faith. Let's not tear each other down or allow each other to spiral down in the name of being authentic. Let's build each other up in our most holy faith. It goes on and it says of the disciples that they said to one another, who can this be? that even the wind and the sea obey him. I just find it funny. These guys are not putting one and one together here. Who could this be? It could be be anybody. Maybe it's God. Maybe it's the Messiah your whole religion has been waiting for for 2,000 years. Maybe. 
Remember last week when Jesus asked the disciples if they understood everything he said, and they said, yes, Lord. This is why I know they were lying. Jesus calms a storm, and they're like, who is this guy? Man, this is amazing. They still don't get that he's God. So if you're a little slow in your faith, that's okay. These guys saw Jesus calm the storm right in front of them, and they were like, this is a real head scratcher, man. Can't, Can't figure this out. Oh, well. I want to make a few more quick points about faith, and then I'm going to share one huge last point that we might have all missed, and I think it's going to change the way you see this story for the rest of your life. First thing, write this down. Faith builds upon faith. Faith builds upon faith. Every storm, every challenge is an opportunity for our faith to be strengthened and for us to grow to the next level of faith. Jesus and his desire for you is not that you would stay at the same level of faith. It's that you would grow in your faith and go on to greater things, greater things, greater things. I don't know if you can use a gambling analogy in church, but I'll use one anyway. The idea is that Jesus wants you to go all in, betting on him so that you can experience the euphoria of him coming through for you. And then you go, whoa, I trusted him, and now, man, look what came back to me. You have even more. But why do you have more? So that you can go all in with even more next time. That's what Jesus wants. He just wants us to learn to trust him with more and more and more. And you know what? That is where the God stories enter your life. That's where the amazing testimonies happen. When you go all in with God, and you bet it all on him, That's where the miracles happen. And some of us have no great God stories because we've never gone all in with God. We've never gone all in. You've bet one chip on God and gone, how come I don't have a million chip return story? You've never gone all in with God. You know, David and Goliath is an interesting story to me because every kid's Bible gets this wrong. They have David as a little boy. David's not a little boy. Making an example of the idea that faith builds upon faith, the David and Goliath story starts with David being the youngest, coming down to visit his brothers who are on the battle lines with the Philistines. And Goliath is there taunting them, and they're all terrified. David says, I'll fight him. People don't go, oh, you're just a little boy. He's probably a young man, 18, 19. He's a strong, ripped guy. And here's the thing. They don't go, oh, that's cute. What does David say? He says, I've killed the bear, I've killed the lion, and he's next. He's just what's next. He doesn't say, this is a giant step for me. This is just the next step. Well, I've done a bear, I've done a lion. I guess a giant is just what's next. That's David's approach. And what's interesting to me about this is there's a few thousand soldiers there. They're terrified. What does that tell you? Well, it tells you they have not accepted the invitation to trust God in their own lives. They haven't been taking greater and greater steps of faith. So when the giant shows up in their life, he's not the next step. He's a step so big they can't even conceive of dealing with it. But David shows up and he's like, this is just the next step for me. This is no big deal. He's very nonchalant about it, very confident in God. David didn't turn into a giant killer overnight. There were many smaller steps along the way, steps of faith. Remember this, my last step of faith is simply preparation for my next step of faith. My last step of faith is simply preparation for my next step of faith. So that when the next step shows up, you can look back and say, oh yeah, God came through. God came through. God came through. He'll come through again. Secondly, if I fail the test of faith, hey, don't worry about it because I'll get to take it again. You'll get to take it again. 
Later on, this is really interesting, later on we'll find that the disciples are once again in the future going to be told to go over to the other side. Once again they will encounter a storm, but things will go very differently. This next time, they'll just keep rowing. This next time, Jesus won't be in the boat with him. This next time, Peter will get out of the boat in the middle of the storm and walk on water. It's pretty amazing. I put the reference there. You can read it at home later today. Some of us are stuck in our Christian walk because we keep being given the same test over and over again, and we have yet to choose faith. We have yet to choose faith. God keeps saying, when are you going to choose? How many times are we going to go over this? God's like, I've literally got all day. We can keep doing this till you die. Or we can go on to greater, bigger, more amazing, more incredible things. Listen, God wants to do incredible things in you and through you. But the one thing he needs from you to do that is your trust. He needs your faith. He needs your faith if he's gonna do great things in your life. Thirdly, in the storm, I need to understand that I walk with God when I agree with God. I walk with God when I agree with God. And if there's ever a verse on faith to remember, it's Amos 3.3. Can two walk together unless they are agreed? Can two walk together unless they are agreed? Can't walk with God in your finances if you're not agreeing with what God says about finances. Can't walk with God in your relationships if you're not agreeing with what God says about relationships. Can't walk with God at work if you won't agree with what God says about work in his word. If you're going to walk with God, you have to be in agreement with him. You have to agree with what he says about your situation. You have to say the same thing that his word says. If you're saying something different, then you're not in agreement with him. God had said, we're going to the other side. The disciples were not in agreement with Jesus' word. Their word was, we are perishing. They are not walking with God in that moment. I walk with God when I agree with God. And in the storm, I need to ask what does God's word say? What does God's word say? You have to decide that in your life, God's word is gonna be the standard of truth. Not your circumstances, not your feelings, and not anybody else's opinion. When something needs to be corrected, it's gonna be your perspective, not God's perspective. You're not gonna say, God, listen, no, you need to come see things my way. When you realize that there's a lack of unity between you and God, you've got to commit in your life, I'm the one that's got to get in line with what God's word says because I want to be walking with him. So in the storm, I only say what God says. I only say what God says. Nothing more. Remember, faith is not a feeling. It's an act of the will. In Hebrews, it says, for indeed... We have had good news preached to us, just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. This is God's word telling us that we can know every single promise in the Bible. We can have them all underlined on the fridge, on the mirror, but faith is what happens when you actually act on those promises, when you actually make decisions about the way you live because you believe what the word of God says. The question we always want to ask about the Bible is, I've just read this, what does this look like in my life? If I believe this is true, what will my life look like? If I really believe this is true, what will it look like? And if you never do that, if you never step out in faith because you don't believe God, everything you know up here is meaningless. 
doesn't mean nothing. It's like memorizing a playbook for a football team and having no idea how to throw a spiral. I know everything. I can talk the talk. Everybody assumes I can throw a spiral. Ah, I never actually learned how to do that. You know. It's meaningless until we actually live it out and act on it. You know, you and I will believe what we hear over and over again. We will believe what we meditate on over and over again, what we think about, what we talk about over and over again. The Apostle Paul says it like this, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And he says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who is promised is faithful. The idea is God's faithful and he expects us to act like he's faithful, not like he's bipolar like we are about spirituality. He says, I'm faithful, so I want you to act like I'm faithful. And then in Hebrews 13, it says, For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? This is my last point. There's so much truth packed into just six verses that we've studied today. And I know you're like, six verses, is this awesome. This series is going to be really cool when we finish it in 20 years. But I hope you understand why sometimes we just have to slow down because God's word is so profound. There's so much in there. But you are missing the most important point in today's study if you miss this one thing. Jesus is our example. He's our role model. That's where the whole idea of WWJD, what would Jesus do? That's where it comes from. It's a great question. What would Jesus do? He's our role model. A great principle for studying the Gospels is WWJD, what was Jesus doing? And in the middle of a life-threatening storm, Jesus, our role model, was sleeping. In the middle of a life-threatening storm, Jesus chooses to model rest. Rest. And if the goal is to be like Jesus, if he's the example, what should the disciples have done in the middle of the storm? They should have sat down next to Jesus and rested. They should have done exactly what he was doing. And if you think this sounds crazy, let me ask those of you who have walked with Jesus for a while. When you've been in a panicked state, I'm perishing, I'm going under, it's all going wrong, I'm dying over here, and you've cried out to God, has God ever responded to you by saying, grab a pen, I've got a 10-point plan for you, are you listening? Never. He's never done that. I don't even need to ask you because I know he's never done that because when you're in that panic state, he's right there with you and he's resting just waiting for you to finish your rant, you know? Oh, you're done? Okay, okay. When we go, I don't have time for that. Jesus says, we got all the time in the world. All the time in the world. Why don't you come and sit down next to me for a while. And we'll usually object and say, you don't, you don't understand, I need a plan. I need some real help right now. He says the same thing. He says, why don't you just come and sit down next to me. Just sit with me for a while. And then he seems to say, you need to remember where you're seated. And you need to remember who you're seated next to. 
In Ephesians 2, the Apostle Paul says, But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In the most real way I can tell you this, you are seated in heavenly places with Jesus Christ right now. That's the greater reality. That's where you and I are right now. And that location, that seat, is a place of rest. It's not a place where for all eternity we complain to Jesus that we're going under. It's a place of rest because we're finally aware, hey, it's Jesus. Like, like right there. And throughout all eternity, not for one second will we think, well, what if, fill in the blank. We won't even have that thought because Jesus is right there. And we'll finally understand that. He's in the boat with you. L listen, I don't need to add anything else to that sentence. Jesus is in the boat with you. He's in the boat with you. When Jesus gave the disciples his word that they were going to the other side, it became fact. It became a fact. It became an inevitability. The forces of nature and the universe will bend to accommodate the words that proceed from the mouth of Jesus. Nothing stands against his word. Nothing. Psalm 119.89 says, Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. It's settled. Both the disciples and you and I, we're going to make it to the other side. We can get there rested, sitting beside Jesus, or we can completely freak out. Either way, we're going to the other side. We're going to the other side. You know, in my life, I've had the opportunity to talk to many believers who've gone through incredible trials and suffered incredible loss. Almost to a man, they will all say something like, you know, it was a brutal season. But I have never felt so close to Jesus in my life. I've never felt so close to Jesus. And I've had some of them say, and I miss that. I miss it. And I've had some of them say, I'd go through it again just to be that close to Jesus again. In Philippians 3, Paul writes this, and I think it carries weight because we know Paul wasn't full of it because he was ultimately killed for his faith. He ultimately lost his life. He says, yet indeed, I count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, 
being conformed to his death. Maybe you've never read it that way, but when it says the fellowship of his sufferings, it's talking about the fact that there is a fellowship, a closeness, an intimacy with Jesus that seems to only be available when we find ourselves in a storm that we can't get out of, in a situation where there's nowhere to go, it's all around us, and the only choice we have is to sit down next to Jesus and be seated with him. There's a fellowship in suffering that Jesus makes available to us. And if you're in the middle of a storm right now and you're freaking out, you are missing out on some of the best fellowship with Jesus you will ever have in your life. And if that's where you are, sit down. Sit down. You are already seated with him in heavenly places. Just believe it and act like it. In conclusion, I want to share that at one point in his ministry, Jesus prayed to the Father, you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. What Jesus is telling us is staggering. He's saying the Father loves us the same way that he loves his only begotten son, Jesus. He loves us the same way. And if you're having trouble believing that God loves you, please remember that last verse. The reference is on your outline. Write it down and read it over and over again until your brain begins to bring it to memory every time you're filled with doubt about the love of God. And take communion today. That's the ultimate reminder that Jesus loves you. The elements will remind you that his body was broken for you. His blood was shed for you. Why? Because he loves you. Because he loves you. Get in agreement with God today and thank him that he loves you. Stop panicking. Be seated with Jesus. You already are. And believe Jesus. Believe Jesus. Let's pray. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Father, thank you so much that you sincerely asked the disciples, why are you so afraid? Where is your faith? Because you wanted them to understand there was no reason for fear. There was no reason not to have faith. The God who spoke the universe into existence was in the boat with them. And God, whatever storm we may be in, you are in the boat with us. We're not going under. We're making it to the other side. And in our panicked state, God, would you help us just to rather sit down beside you and rest, knowing that you have all the time in the world to do what you need to do. Because with just a few words, you can make the storm stop. You can turn it all around in a moment. Father, I think we all believe in you. But help us to be people who believe you. Who take you at your word and live with a peace and a confidence that makes us different from everyone else. Father, I pray for the faith to believe for miracles in this room right now. I pray for the faith to believe for financial miracles, for relational miracles, 
for career and job-related miracles, for miracles with sons and daughters and family members, for miracles in the area of health, God. I pray that you would release faith in this room, in Jesus' name. Help us to do our part, which is simply to believe that you are a rewarder of those who diligently seek you. Fill us with faith, God. That big challenge, I want you to just keep praying about that. And then just begin to, in your own heart, just begin to speak faith into that area. Just begin to thank God even more than asking Him. Just begin to thank Him that He is with you. Begin to thank Him that He'll never leave you or forsake you. Begin to thank Him that He's for you. Begin to thank Him that you're going to make it to the other side. 